open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue preaching through uh, the letter here to the Colossians. Well, I don't know about you guys, but when I've been watching the news lately, uh, I can become a bit discouraged and uh, maybe a bit frustrated at times as I hear the news about just kind of the state of our world and the state of our country. And uh, I think any year, I, I think just in general watching the news, no matter what year it is, I, I think you can, it can tend to leave, leave you a bit discouraged and a bit frustrated. Uh, but it does seem like 2020 might be a, a little worse, at least than ones that I have personally experienced. And uh, I think when I'm, I'm being exposed to kind of the news and everything that's going on, I do have this mixture of both discouragement as well as frustration because at times I can feel helpless. Like I can just feel absolutely helpless. Like I see the problems that are out there in the world. I think I can ultimately diagnose them as being there as a result of sin being in the world. But I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to go and, and what to do and where to, how to react to it all. Like, like one news station will tell me that I need to respond by worshiping health and power. And then I change the channel and this news station tells me I need to respond by worshiping wealth and power. And I don't want to worship any of those. Like, I want to worship Jesus, right? And so I know many of you probably feel the same way. Like, at times, you just feel frustrated and helpless because you don't know what to do or where to go and how to react. Now, let's start out by understanding, okay, what would be the wrong place to go first, okay? The wrong place to go first when you feel frustratingly helpless, the wrong place to go first would be to social media, okay? Uh, the wrong place to go, that can't be step one, to go kind of vent your feelings and frustrations to all uh, your friends and whoever might be seeing it, okay? That can't be step one. That might be an acceptable step seven or eight to go share your thoughts on social media, but that can't be step one. But instead, as followers of Jesus, we need to follow what Colossians 3 verse 16 says. Okay, so this should be step one. We want to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That has to be step one, okay? So that we can go to step two, which follows it, so that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So that we can encourage one another to step three, which is worship, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And so that would be my prayer for us in this time this morning, is that we would allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, and that we would teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, so that we might have a renewed desire to worship, to worship. You see, Christians, and I'm not just talking about worship in here on a Sunday morning, okay? What we're going to see is that as the, our relationships are redeemed, uh, whether it be wives and husbands like we talked about last week, or whether it be children and parents, or what, however it applies to whatever work we are called to, we're going to see that we need our relationships to be redeemed, but we also need our worship to be reformed, okay? And not just our worship when we gather, but also our worship when we scatter both in our homes and in our workplaces. 
You see, Christians are oftentimes not called to be revolutionaries, but we're instead called to be reformers, okay? And so let me challenge you today to not feel the frustration, to not let the frustration drive you in in how you would react to what's going on around you, but instead let's let God's Word renew us. Let's, Let's hear wise teaching and admonishment so that our relationships with one another can be redeemed and our worship of God can be reformed. John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Okay? Missions exist because worship doesn't. We are here in Franklin on mission so that the worship of God would increase in this place. That his will would be done in Franklin as it is in heaven, right? That, the, that Franklin would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That people here in Franklin would see our good work and glorify our Father in heaven. And we believe that God is very much working towards that end, both in the world and in the city of Franklin. And you're not going to hear that on the news, okay? But he is, and he's calling us to be about that work as well. And it has to start in here, it has to start in our homes, and then it has to spill over into our workplaces or wherever God has called us to spend our time throughout the week. And so these are going to be some big, world-changing callings that he calls us to today, okay? And I'm including kind of part one was last week talking about wives and husbands. Now we're going to shift to children and parents. But then we will also see that whatever work or calling that God has given to us, if it is done unto the Lord, that work becomes worship, Any work that God has called you to do, if it is done unto the Lord, that work becomes worship. And therefore, these callings, although to us at first might seem kind of small and insignificant, and I'm not not sure how this is going to change the world, we, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven didn't show up all at once fully realized and enjoyed, but instead Jesus said that the kingdom was like, like a mustard seed that got planted in the ground. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven was like leaven that, that a woman hid into, uh, into dough. Following God's calling in the small work that he has given us, will most definitely produce exponential amounts of fruitful worship. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into the text today, and uh, we're starting in verse 20. And so we're going to be starting uh, by addressing the kids, okay? So all the kids in here, if you are under 18, I'm going to consider you uh, a kid for right now, all right? So all the kids, hey, this first part is all to you guys, all right? So are you guys with me? Are you guys ready? Kids, if you are ready, say, come on with it. All right, come on now. All right, okay. All right, I'm coming at you kids, all right? Colossians 3, verse 20. This is written to you guys, all right? He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Now, let me remind you guys what we first talked about last week, understanding the original audience that was hearing this, this letter read, okay? Because in the Roman Empire, the husband or the father was like the absolute sovereign ruler of the household. Okay, I'm not just talking about head of the household. I'm not talking about like a servant leader, like, like we kind of learn in the Bible. I'm talking in the Roman Empire that fathers and husbands had absolute control and rule over everything in their house. All right, we learned last week that in that culture, in that context, that women had no legal rights. They were essentially considered possessions of their husbands. And children, even more so, had no rights. Okay, a, f- a father had the right to work his child as long as he wanted to out in the out in the fields. There were no child labor laws back then, right? A, a father had the right to even imprison his child or to sell his child into slavery. Pretty much do anything with the child. The father had a right to do. A father had absolute control and uh, essentially legal authority over everything in his household. And so we need to understand that context because we can come to it a little bit. And, you know, in in the year 2020 in America, we can read this passage and be like, wow, I mean, Paul's being a little, little oppressive here. Like he's, he's, he's uh, a little demeaning maybe to women and children here. And that is absolutely not the case, okay? In fact, it's the exact opposite because the fact that Paul even is addressing wives and children, that would have been a radical thing in that context, right? The fact that he even acknowledges their presence, it, what he is doing is he is acknowledging their personhood. He's acknowledged the, acknowledging them as, as fellow image bearers and having equal dignity and worth with the men in the room. And so this was not Paul demeaning children or women at all. He's actually acknowledging them. It, it would have been pretty radical to, to read a letter like this and for him to specifically address children, Right? But he gives this calling here. It's a God-given calling to children. And he gives them kind of this calling and, and, and kind of a job or a work that they are to be about in their homes. So kids, uh, okay, kids, I'm going to get some response from you guys right now, all right? What are some jobs that you guys want to do when you grow up? Like what are some, what are some things you want to do for work when you, when you grow up? Let, let's hear some, just, just shout them out. What are some, some things you guys would want to do? UPS man, all right, okay. Okay, I didn't, get, I didn't hear that, Jericho. What did you say? Oh, yeah, working with your dad, yeah, okay. What, what else, what else? A vet? Works with houses, okay, all right. What else do you guys want to do when you grow up? Veterinarian, yeah. A zookeeper, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, baseball player. There we go. All right, man. Those are all good jobs, guys. Those are that. that those would be good, good works to to pursue. Good jobs to pursue. But kids, did you know that you guys have a job right now? Did you guys know that? You got got. You guys have work to do right. Now, God calls you to it right here in verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything. Now, that's hard work. Is it, I mean, isn't that hard work? That's difficult work. That's sometimes frustrating work. 
right? Now, why is work so hard? Why is work so hard? Because listen, kids, this work that you guys have to do, you're, you're not alone. It's not the only job that's hard. It's not the only work that's frustrating, okay? Kids, turn to your parents and ask your parents if their work is hard. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, we get to, Is it sometimes frustrating? Ask your parents. Is your work sometimes frustrating? <laughs> yeah. Why is this? Why is work frustrating? Okay, look up on the screen, all right? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. They fell into sin. God tells Adam that now because of sin, work is going to be frustratingly difficult, all right? Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, husbands don't make any comments or nudges there, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now listen, work was created before sin entered into the picture, okay? And work was created good, okay? Work is not a result of the fall. Before the fall, God had told Adam and Eve, before sin even entered into the picture, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to be his representatives of his dominion throughout all the earth. All right, it's what theologians call the cultural mandate. He gave Adam and Eve this good work to do. And we see that command then repeated by Jesus, essentially when he tells his disciples to go disciple the nations and to bring them under the authority of Jesus. All right? This is good work. That, is, that work is good. But because of sin, we know that work will be frustratingly difficult. And kids, your work is no different. Like, obeying your parents in everything is really hard work. Kids, obeying your parents I can't say much more, but you can, look, you can see my face, right? All right? It's really difficult to obey your parents and everything. Even if they're good parents. It's difficult. It's hard work. And the reason that sometimes when your parents tell you to do something, the reason that you want to disobey is because in our own strength, we want to turn away from the ways of God. But here's the good news. Okay, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Everyone needs to hear this. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came to earth. And did you know, kids, that Jesus was a kid at one point in his, in, on his time on earth? Like, usually we think of him as a baby in a manger and then a 30-year-old man. But in the, in the middle there, he was a kid. And Jesus perfectly obeyed his parents which I don't know why we don't consider that to be the first miraculous sign that he performed. But Jesus 
perfectly obeyed his parents and he continued with that perfect obedience by submitting to the will of his father and he went to the cross as our perfect sacrifice for sin so that he could take your disobedience upon himself and pay the punishment that you deserved and then give you his perfect obedience instead so that when God looks at you, he can declare you right with him because you are clothed with the obedience of Jesus. And so kids, your disobedience can be forgiven and Jesus' obedience can be received by confessing the ways you've turned from God and by trusting in Jesus' work on your behalf. And if you haven't done that, you should do that today. You should talk with your parents about that today. And it gets even better then, okay? Because after Jesus dies, then three days later, he rose from the dead, and he eventually then ascended into heaven, and he's now seated on the throne, and he's praying for you, and he's interceding for you, so that, and he's a sympathetic high priest. He knows how frustratingly difficult it is to obey your parents, and now he can help you and give you the power to obey them as well. And then look, God tells us why you should obey your parents, right? That's probably a good question every kid should ask, right? The the why question. Why? Thank you. I love it. Why should we obey our parents? You see, oftentimes we obey our parents to try to make them happy. And that's that's an okay reason, but it's not going to take you the distance, okay? That's an okay reason, but there's an even better reason here in this verse. Colossians 3, verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. This makes the Lord smile. The God who loves you who created you, who died for you, who now lives to intercede for you, obeying your parents, it it pleases him. And so kids, this is one of your jobs right now, all right? This This is your work that God calls you to. It is to obey your parents. And when work is done unto the Lord, it becomes worship, and that is what you were created for. When work is done for the Lord, it becomes worship. Now, parents, hopefully you were listening up as well. Because now you've heard the job that God has called your kids to. And it is actually your now responsibility to make sure they do good work. And fathers should take the leadership and responsibility in this endeavor. But Paul knows because of sin that fathers specifically in helping their children towards obedience are going to be tempted to do so in a sinful way. Okay, so look back at Colossians 3 verse 21 and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Growing up, this was uh, one of my friend's uh, favorite Bible verses to have memorized. And uh, he would often quote it to his dad uh, as his dad was coming to discipline him, all right? Uh, which I don't think is a good idea. I think he quoted the NASB version. So it was like, you know, fathers, don't exacerbate your children as he's like running from his dad, okay? 
I would not recommend that, all right, kids? Uh, if, you don't want to, if, you, if you don't want your father to provoke you to anger, I would encourage you not to provoke him, all right? So don't take verses out of context and try to throw them at your parents, all right? Not, not a good call. But what does this mean? What, is this, what does this call to fathers mean? To not provoke their children lest they become discouraged. What this means is that fathers should not be overly harsh in the discipline of their kids in a way that provokes them to anger and discouragement. Fathers should not be overly harsh in the discipline of their kids in a way that provokes them to anger and discouragement. Okay, this can certainly be applied to both mothers and fathers, but I think fathers in general are, are a bit more uh, commonly to kind of fall into this, uh, this temptation to discipline too harshly in a way that discourages and provokes our kids. But in order for us to, to understand this, and in order for us fathers to obey this, I think we do have to understand our, our terms here, okay? And I think it's helpful to separate out the difference between discipline and punishment, okay? Now, we could split hairs about how you want to define those, but in my mind, I think it's helpful to see those two things as different, discipline and punishment, okay? Because as parents, one of our jobs that we are given to do, a work that we are called to do, is to discipline our kids. We see it in the Proverbs, all right? Proverbs 29, verse 17. It says, discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Parents, if you one day want rest, discipline your kids, okay? And all the parents who wanted some rest said amen. Okay, all right. But listen, discipline, it has to be seen differently than punishment, okay? Punishment involves the idea of justice and retribution, all right? That, that's punishment, all right? That's kind of evening the score. That's, that's uh, almost vengeance-type stuff. All right? And we provoke and discourage our kids when we punish them, right? In a way that we are trying to enforce justice and, and, and retribution and those types of things. In our house, we try to make it very clear how we use those words because we want our boys to understand that that punishment is not what we are doing here, okay? We want them to understand that Jesus has taken the punishment for the sins of his people. And we are not called to punish our kids. We're called to point them to put their faith in the one who took the punishment for their sin. So I do not believe we're called to punish them, but we are called to discipline them. And discipline is different in that it, it involves the concept of correction with the end goal of restored fellowship, all the while giving your kids a long-term vision to where you are leading them, okay? So discipline involves the concept of correction with the end goal of restored fellowship, all the while giving your kids a long-term vision for where you're leading them, all right? This is Leadership 101. If you're going to lead anyone, whether it be your child or employee or anything, if you're going to be a leader, you have to give some sort of vision as to where you are leading them to. And so when I go to talk to our boys after they have been disciplined, all right, it's not as simple as just like you did the crime, now you do the time, right? And, and, then, and, then, and then it's good. 
No, when I go to talk to them, and I don't do this perfectly, I'm still growing in this and desiring to be better at it, but when I go to talk to them while I'm disciplining them, I need to correct them and show them where they need to be headed instead. I need to correct them onto the path and show them where God is leading them instead. So for example, all right, if the boys had been disrespectful or, or fussing at Brit. And, uh, uh, and I need to correct them and I need to show them um, um, kind of what, you know, how they need to be corrected. I go and talk to them in a way that, that, that shows them, hey, you need today to learn how to respect your mom so that as you grow up as a man, you will love and respect all the women in your life that you will cherish them and provide for them and protect them and not take them for granted. You need to respect your mom today, and then you need to be on a trajectory, trajectory of respecting all the women in your life. I should also then show them how if they continue on this path of a disrespectful, fussy attitude, that that is not going to lead to success or human flourishing in any avenue that they're a part of, whether it be school or sports or career or anything. No one is wanting to work alongside anyone that is disrespectful or having a fussy attitude. Right? You need to give them, give them a vision. You're correcting them. You're not punishing them. You're disciplining them. You're correcting them. You're giving them a long-term vision. And then you need to restore fellowship. All right? After we discipline our boys, we make sure they know, hey, it is good now. Right? Like, we are back in fellowship with one another. Come join the family at the table. Like, I'm not going to be embittered about you the rest of the night over this. It was dealt with. We've corrected it. And now all is good. All is well. We are back in fellowship with one another. And fathers, when we're correcting and disciplining our kids, we also need to keep in mind as to how God calls us to correct any believer that needs to be corrected. And we see this in Galatians 6, verse 1, when Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Some of you fathers probably need to write this on a note card and keep it in your pocket because I'm telling you, when the time comes to discipline, you better keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted to discipline out of anger or, or retribution or revenge or anything like this. But instead, we need to correct our children in a spirit of gentleness, of gentleness. Now, some of you fathers are probably thinking, hey, that's all, that's all well and good. That, that's not me, man. I'm not, I'm not the harsh, like, overbearing father. But there are subtle ways that we discourage our kids as well. And I was reading an article about how to, uh, how to tame a horse. Okay, and uh, and for uh, full disclosure, I've never tamed a horse before. Uh, I rode a horse when I was little that uh, ended up dying while I was riding it. But that's that's uh, most of the horse experience that I have. Uh, so I never tamed a horse. But really, there's kind of two schools of thought here. 
All right? There's two schools of thought in how you tame a horse. One method is to progressively tame the horse by using a halter and putting a bit in the mouth and putting a blanket and a saddle on the horse and, and kind of over time, patiently and progressively teaching the horse to obey your leading. And if you do this right over time, it can produce like a full spirited, obedient horse. There's another school of thought when it comes to taming horses, and that is some wranglers will take a two-by-four and knock the horse to its knees anytime it disobeys. Now, supposedly, you can tame a horse that way, but what it produces is it produces a discouraged and a spiritless animal who never reaches its full potential. A father who provokes and discourages his children is essentially doing that. He's harshly disciplining in a way that's just knocking the wind out from under his kids. And you can maybe be harsh enough and discourage your child enough that they will appear to be obedient. But I guarantee the moment that they are 18, you'll never see them again. And they'll probably be embittered against you the rest of their life. You see, earthly fathers are to be imitators of our heavenly father. And yes, he disciplines, but he also showers us with his love and his grace and his encouragement. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17, it shows us some of the heart of our father. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Yes, we have a heavenly father who disciplines us, but we also have a father who sings over us, who rejoices over us, who quiets us with his love. And so, yes, we are to discipline our kids, but we're also to sing over them to encourage them. And we must not provoke them or discourage them, fathers. And so like I was saying before, sometimes it's overt harshness, but sometimes it's much more subtle. And this might be where we even struggle more with kind of the subtle ways that we can provoke and discourage our kids. Okay, I'm going to give you three ways that we are subtly provoking and discouraging our kids. Number one, you are subtly provoking and discouraging your kids if you're not giving them clear expectations. All right, if you're not giving them clear expectations, you are provoking and discouraging your kids. All right, so if you go to a new place or you're going out to eat or maybe you even come to church and your kids start doing something that you think they shouldn't be doing and you freak out and blow up on them, but you've never actually given them clear expectations, like that's on you. All right, that's on you. Have you given them clear expectations or are you assuming that they can read your mind? We often, when we're in the van going someplace, especially if it's out of our normal routine, we'll talk to the boys, like talk them through about what's to happen. Like, hey, we're going to be around this person and this person. We're going to this place. And here is what we expect of you. And we make it very clear, these are the expectations. If they break those expectations, then we move into discipline and correction. 
But if you never give your kids clear expectations and you expect them to just be able to read your mind, you are provoking and discouraging your kids. Another subtle way that we are provoking and discouraging our kids, number two, is when we are not keeping our rules concise. All right? When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, it was a garden of grace with one rule. All right? It was a garden of yes, yeses and grace, and there was one rule. All right? If you have like a hundred house rules that your child needs a legal expert to try to help them figure out how to comply... All right, you are provoking and discouraging your kids. I mean, sometimes I even catch myself doing this, right? We'll, we'll go to some place and I'll list like 20 things for the boys to obey and then I'll freak out when they break one of those, right? Like, don't do this, don't touch that, don't look at that, don't taste that, whatever, you know, and I'm just like, and then I just pounce on them when they break one of those. Church, if God's main commands were 10, and Jesus boiled it down to two, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you don't need like a hundred house rules, okay? And I was reading a pastor, Pastor Doug Wilson, he wrote in one of his books that when his dad used to leave for work, he gave the kids three rules. He said, number one, no disobedience, number two, no lying, and number three, no disrespecting your mother, all right? So fathers, if you need a concise list of rules while you're still coming up with your own, take those three and use them, right? No disobedience, no lying, no disrespecting your mother. And the third way that you are subtly provoking and discouraging your kids is when you're not consistent with your discipline. If you are too lazy to discipline your kids sometimes, but then you discipline them for the same thing later on, you are provoking and discouraging your kids. They don't know why sometimes you discipline for this certain thing and sometimes you don't. It's confusing and it's unloving to them. Okay? Your discipline should not be driven by your emotions or your energy levels. All right, let me repeat that again. Your discipline should not be driven by your emotions or your energy levels. You need to be consistent regardless of how you feel. And if you are not being consistent, you are provoking and discouraging your kids. Look back now at verse 22. All right, we're going we're gonna to shift the conversation away from children and parents. Paul is now going to talk about slaves and masters. And we have, to, we have to be a little careful here that we don't try to directly apply this to us. But I do think there are some points of application we can draw. Okay, so look back at verse 22. He writes, bond servants, which some of your older ESV versions will say slaves. I think the KJV says servants. The latest ESV uses bond servants, okay? Bond servants, obey in everything, in everything, excuse me, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, let's talk. Let's try to understand the context here. Because let me clarify, Paul is in no way condoning 
or supporting slavery. All right? In fact, Paul, again here, is acknowledging these bondservants or slaves. He's acknowledging them as human beings. Like when this would have been first read in the church in Colossae, uh, likely all the bondservants would have been towards the back. And all of a sudden, they would have heard Paul write and say and, and address them. Bondservants! They would have been like, is he talking to us? Like he's acknowledging us? It would have been crazy that he was acknowledging them. He was giving, he was acknowledging their personhood. He was acknowledging them as image bearers of God. Paul in no way is, is supporting or condoning kind of this human invention of slavery. And we know that Paul, he often recognized slaves as fellow image bearers and brothers and sisters in the faith. Earlier in this chapter, in Colossians 3, verse 11, he wrote, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, Paul's, Paul's not supporting slavery here. And the Bible in no way supports slavery here as well, as we know Paul's other teachings and other New Testament teachings would actually be the things that plant the seeds for the eventual, the eventual outlaw of slavery in many countries. Right? Go read a biography about William Wilberforce, right? who, who worked towards outlawing the slave trade in Great Britain. Go read about some of these Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith, who have, who have led the charge to outlaw and end slavery. But sadly, our work in ending slavery is not yet complete. Sadly, there are still an estimated 40 million slaves worldwide. Child trafficking and sex slavery is sadly still a very real thing even here in this country. And so we need Christians to lead the charge in bringing that to an end. And so Paul is not pro-slavery here, but what he is doing, he is speaking into the reality that the Colossians lived in, okay? And in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that they were six, there, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire to give you perspective, that would have been half the population of the Roman Empire, all right? Half of the Roman Empire was, were slaves. Uh, but we also need to understand that it looked a little different than what we think of slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of what happened here in America, okay? Slavery in the Roman Empire was a little different. For instance, in that time, people you know, in, in the empire, people were not enslaved because of the color of their skin. All right? They were mainly enslaved due to military conquest. Their, their tribe or their country or their nation had been defeated and they were put into slavery. Or they were enslaved because of economic hardship. Right? They had debts that they couldn't pay or things like that. They would be put into slavery. And so it wasn't an ethnicity thing in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was more a military conquest or an economic hardship thing. Also, something that differentiated slavery from, in the Roman Empire from that in, here in America is in the, in the Roman Empire, it typically was not lifelong. The average slave was a slave for roughly 10 to 14 years, and by that point, they could typically buy their freedom or kind of work their way out of slavery. So Paul is in no way supporting slavery here. He's speaking into the current, current context that they are living in. 
And, and, and one of the main reasons that he doesn't encourage then slaves to like stage a peaceful protest or something is that because they're living in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not acknowledge peaceful protest, all right? If Paul would have said, hey, all you bond servants, let's, let's kind of rise up to end this thing, what would have happened was they would have all been killed. And so Paul here is not promoting some sort of revolution from the slaves, but he does call for a reformation, all right? So don't miss that here. He's not calling the, a revolution, but he is calling for a, rever, uh, a reformation that those who are bond servants should now view their work as ultimately being unto the Lord. And if their work is ultimately being done unto the Lord, then that work is turning into worship. And then he goes on to see he wants reformation to happen as well. He encourages masters, just like he did to husbands and fathers, he encourages then masters to not be harsh, but to be just and fair remembering that Jesus is Lord of all. Now, since all of you are not bondservants, we need to be careful in how we apply this. Because uh, it could be really easy to just say, all right, uh, I know many of you feel like slaves when you go to your jobs, right? And uh, maybe your employers feel like masters and you feel like servants. And so let's just kind of directly a parallel and apply this. I don't think we can do that. It's, it's different, okay? It's different. But I do think we can look at verses 17 and 23 that really kind of sandwich this passage and give us a principle that is true for all of us. Okay, so Colossians 3 verse 17, before Paul goes into kind of how our relationships need to be uh, redeemed and and how our our roles need to be different and the work that wives and husbands and children are called to, he says in verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then skip down to verse 23 that kind of sandwiches this as well. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now that's certainly a principle we can apply to ourselves. That in whatever we do, whatever work God has given you to do, you are to do it heartily as for the Lord meaning you are called to work passionately unto the Lord in a God-glorifying way. And when that work is done passionately for the Lord, that work becomes worship. So, So looking back through these verses, whether it's the work of a wife or a mother or a husband or a father or the work of a child in the household or whether it's whatever calling God has given us, whether it's the work of a teacher or a pastor or a doctor or a lawyer or an electrician or a plumber, like a follower of Jesus should view their work as worship. Now let me clarify. We do not worship our work, but followers of Jesus, we do worship God with our work. And this is what Adam and Eve were created to do. They were created to worship God with their work. And this is what we've been made to new creations to do, to worship God with our work. 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we'll have this up on the screen. It's a really popular, well-known passage that we read a lot here. And we mainly, when we read it, emphasize how we are being saved by grace through faith in verses 8 through 9. And that is an important point. But then we often kind of trail off at the end about talking about what we were saved for. Okay? So look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I'm going to read verses 8 through 9 quicker than we usually do, and I'm going to slow down for verse 10. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me read that again. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now this might be profound. Good works is the plural of good work. Are you guys with me? You guys still with me? Okay. Something though happens, at least in my mind, when I add an S to good work, and I think of good works, I think of helping an older lady across the street or giving to the homeless or serving the poor. But when I take the S off, I all of a sudden think of good work as everything that I'm called to do. My job at the hospital, my job here at the church. And listen, good works, it certainly does encompass helping the lady across the street. And it certainly does encompass serving the poor. But it also encompasses what God has called you to do for your work. We were saved and made new creations for good work. Church, if we believe this, and if we really worshiped God through our work, then Christians should be the best workers. We should. We should strive to do excellent work. Remember, work does not exist because of the fall, okay? Work became frustratingly difficult because of the fall, but it does not exist because of the fall, and therefore we should be getting after it in our work, not as people pleasers, but as worshipers of God. When we look out into the world, we can often feel helpless, right? And wonder how we can be a part of changing things or bringing about uh, 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 the, the kingdom here. And here God shows us what we are to do. He shows us. He says, see your work at home and in the city as worship. See your work as wives and husbands and as children and as parents and as plumbers and electricians. And nurses, like, see your work as worship. And church, do not underestimate what God can do in and through a group of people this size who are continually pursuing the right worship of God, both in our gathering and in our scattering. All right? This is why we cannot be content to just worship God on Sunday mornings from 1030 to noon. We can't be content with that. We should worship him all throughout the week with our good work. 
Okay, listen, when I'm, when I'm preparing to preach, all right, on a Sunday morning, uh, I feel a healthy, I think, weight of responsibility in just the importance of this work, right? Like, like I, uh, um, I, this is a part of our corporate worship of God, and therefore I think myself and anyone else who steps up here to preach, like we try to prayerfully prepare, spend time studying, spend time in prayer to get ready to come in here and do good work when we preach, okay? It might not always seem like that, but I promise no one on Sunday mornings like waking up like, oh, I got to preach today, right? Like, no, like we have prayerfully prepared for this task. And I think I should do that because this is the work that God has given me to do. But God has given you work to do as well. And Christians should absolutely prayerfully prepare to go to work. You should. I really believe you should feel that same weight of responsibility and being prayerfully prepared as I do coming in here as you go out to whatever God has called you to do for your work whether it's working inside the home with your kids or whether it's working outside the home, Christians should be striving to be prayerfully prepared for their work. They should be learning and growing and striving to be excellent at whatever they do. Then when we are at our work, we should not be time wasters. Christian workers should not be scrolling social media and personal email. They should not be lazy or complacent or lackluster in their work. God's word says that whatever we do, we should work heartily at it. Not half-heartedly, wholeheartedly, passionately, in a God-glorifying way. Because when work is done unto the Lord, it is worship. We were created and redeemed for good, worshipful work. Martin Luther, he understood this when he wrote, he once wrote, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does, does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. The Proverbs tell us in Proverbs twenty two twenty nine it says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. It's telling us that good, skillful work will not go unnoticed. And when people see our good work, they will glorify our Father in heaven. And so my prayer for us and my prayer for this city is that in 30 years, people in Franklin will know that if they want the best work done, they call those weird people that worship Jesus on Sundays. Right? My prayer is that people will know if they want the best education, if they want the best medical provider, if they want the best mechanic and the best, most trusted businessman and woman, if they want the best electrician and the most honest contractors, and if they want the best landlords, they call the Christians. We talk about blessing the city and the world all the time, right? 
that we exist by the grace of the God and the power of the Holy Spirit to behold God, to build up the body, to bless the city and the world. But listen, a blessing of the city and the world, it has to, do, to start with a renewed desire to worship, both in here and in our homes and in our workplaces. And we will bless the city and the world by God's grace and the power of His Spirit. Let's pray.